0: God i 'm so thankful for the opportunity that we have to come together even if it 's from a distance that we have the opportunity to join together as a church family to worship you to serve you and to uh, to really further your and advance your kingdom all across the world. I pray us today as our people give that they give generously and that they allow. Uh, your resources that you've given them to be spread all across this world as we as we further your kingdom. God, uh, it's something that we're especially grateful of today, knowing that we are uh, safe and secure in a country that um, just even this weekend, as we celebrate Memorial Day, as we recognize the people that gave their lives um, to give us freedom to worship you, we're just thankful that we have that opportunity to do so. Bless today, bless our services, and bless our watch parties as they start up next week. This is all in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, Pastor David, come on. Hey, good morning, church family. I'm super excited to be with you today. I have the opportunity to open up God's word for a little bit and examine the next aspect, the next element of our Heaven and Earth series. Um, I was telling the, the crew that's here with us today, um, I'm excited, particularly this morning, um, because I'm the most tan person on camera at this moment. Uh, hmm. Pastor, when he's normally here, makes me feel washed out and very white, especially with the lights that we have right now. And so today I'm very impressed with myself. And you can sit in the comments and just say, David, you look beautiful today. That'd be totally fine. I'd be 100% okay with that. Um, all kidding aside, let's jump right in this morning. Um, we said uh, so far in our series that the point of the Bible is to tell a story about heaven and earth and their relationship. What we've said so far is that in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see those two realities, those two domains, God's space, which is heaven, where his presence is and his will is done, completely overlaps with earth, which is our space. And in and, and Genesis 1 and 2, we have this beautiful picture of God walking in the garden with his, uh, with his creatures and with Adam and Eve, and they're having um, great conversation, I imagine. They're talking back and forth about the things that they've done during the day or whatever. Um, I, I just can't even imagine what that would have been like. Their relationships are, are completely melded and completely put together in a, in a ordered and wonderful, beautiful right way. and and But then something happens. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, we see kind of a 180 of that perfect picture. And instead of heaven and, and earth now overlapping, there is a rift or a schism that occurs because of the decision that Adam and Eve make to rebel against God, placing their own desire above their relationship with him. And so what happens is now instead of having heaven and earth overlap, we have a separation between the two domains. And the rest of the story of the Bible is really uh, God's, God's plan, God's path, God's movement to try to bring heaven back overlapping with earth. And, and the end of the story, actually, uh, what we see in Revelation um, is that the, the two domains are going to completely overlap once again when we get new resurrected bodies at jesus's return but all throughout this story there are major themes that we could talk about now this is kind of the major uh, overarching narrative thing that's happening from genesis all the way to revelation the reunification of heaven and earth but there are themes that we could look at throughout the old testament and the new testament and i want to focus on two this morning faithfulness and submission to god on his terms produce life whereas rebellion produce separation and exile and exile is a word that you're going to see over and over again as you read the old testament from the moment that we open the bible god sets the terms of a faithful relationship and and he tells the 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 humans adam and eve that are in the garden he says listen you have this whole thing you you have this beautiful temple that i've made for you that's kind of some language we've been using so far uh you are my images you're to be like me and do for me on my own terms and here's the terms don't eat of that one tree there's one tree that's positioned in the center of the garden. Um, there was two trees, but there's really one that kind of the story focuses on. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they're told not to eat of that tree. Uh, and when they do that, there's consequences to that. Death is the one that God mentions. And what happens is Adam and Eve then go about their work, they're working their garden, and, and God calls his great creation good and beautiful and right. It's uh, so one of the reasons that we don't think matter is bad. And we don't think that the earth is a bad thing or this this earthly life that we're living right now is a bad thing. In fact, w- we actually think that to be embodied spirits is a good thing. That's the whole point of the Bible one day is to be embodied spirits once again, as we are again in that heaven and earth overlapping relationship. But what happens is there's a figure that shows up. The story takes a dramatic turn, a 180 degree turn shift. And what happens is Satan shows up in the garden and he tempts Adam and Eve to rebel against God. He comes to the living images in their own space and in their own temple. And he begins to question them about God's goodness. Is God really good? Is God, is God, I mean, I mean, he, he gave you all this stuff. I understand that, but I want you to, I want you to focus on this one little thing that he said you can't have on this one little tree that, that you're not allowed to eat from, is God really, would, would would a good God really not let you eat of this one thing? I mean, is this really the life that you want to live? And so he, he offers them uh, an alternative path to, to the life that God has told them to live. God says, if you're going to have real life, be faithful to me, submit to me on my terms, don't do these things, or this thing particularly, and Satan comes and says, well, but is that really what God said? Is that? No, 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 listen. He he just straight out lies to them and says, no, you surely won't die if you go ahead and eat of this fruit. In fact, you're going to be more fully like God if you eat of this fruit. And there's a really interesting line um, in Genesis chapter 3. Eve finds the fruit um, uh, like she she sees it and thinks of it as, um, this wonderful thing that will give her knowledge and will enhance her ability. And I think what's really happening here is what she's seeing in the fruit is the ability to rule on her own terms. And Adam's there with her, so let's not give Adam a pass. They're both sitting there being tempted together. And I think what's really happening here is they're 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 uh, wanting to go above their pay grade and go above God. And what they do is they elevate themselves and their desire to be in charge and to rule. And they take God's rule and reign and say, well, that's not really what I want. It's really not the the thing that's going to produce the life that I want to have. So instead, we're going to buy into this lie that Satan brings to them. And what ends up happening is sin. That's exactly what sin is. It's rebellion against God, going against the commands that he's placed for us and elevating our own desires above the relationship that we want to have with him. And so now. What we, what we see in the, uh, in the narrative in Genesis chapter three is that these people are become less than human, less than what they were supposed to be. How about that? They don't die a physical death, but rather there's a spiritual death. There's a separation. And then God exiles them from the garden. Again, this is the theme over and over again. Faithfulness and submission to God produce life as long as we're living on his terms. Whereas rebellion produces separation and exile from God's presence. Real life is found in him. Real life is found in obedience. Real life is found in submission to him. All other attempts at a meaningful life, they're just false versions. They're parodies of real life. So where does this leave us now? Because that's kind of a really ancient story that we can look way far back at and we go, okay, I, okay, interesting. But I think that this story is tantamount for us to understand because when we do, we actually have much better theology moving forward. So the question is, where does this leave us now? Is there any hope for sinners to have meaningful lives? Because we all realize that none of us perfectly do God's commands. None of us perfectly uphold ourselves. We lie to ourselves all the time. We are rude to ourselves all the time in our own self-talk. Uh, we're rude to others. We've done rude things to other people. Uh, and so there's plenty of ways that we've broken God's commands and have rebelled against him. And we call that sin. And so what do we do now? How do we have meaningful lives? Well, the meaning of life is found through a restored relationship with Jesus Christ. What what he did for us on the cross is reconciled us back to God. So when he came to earth, he lived a perfect sinless life on our behalf and what he did when he went to the cross, now now I understand that people executed him, but he laid down his life. He came as a substitutionary um, atonement. Now that's really theological language, but what he did is he died in our place. He died so that we don't have to pay the penalty of sin, which is death. Instead, he pays it on our behalf and all that we have to do to enter into God's kingdom and to be a part of the true kingdom is we have to say, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of my life. He's Lord of the earth. Uh, what Romans chapter 10 says is that we believe in our hearts and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And, and God honors that. Not only does he, does he see that we you know, say that, what actually happens is he imputes Jesus's righteousness to us. He credits our accounts. He says that you no longer um, are viewed in my you know, banking statement or whatever, uh, as a sinner, one who's not deserving of my grace and my mercy and my love, but rather you are righteous because of what Jesus accomplished on your behalf. And that's all that we have to do is spend a moment in prayer, a moment of submission. Now, the rest of our lives will be submission and obedience to him, but there's a singular moment where we can pray and ask God to come and be in our lives and be Lord of our lives. And when he becomes Lord, we don't get to tell him no. We have to say yes. We have to say yes over and over and over again. We're going to read a passage later on in 1st John that talks about how we must follow his commandments. So here's what we're tempted to think then, okay, if I accept Jesus and now I have a restored relationship with with the true king, then everything is correct, right? Everything's good in my life. I'll have all the money I want. I'll have all the possessions that I want. I'll I'll just be the coolest person that possibly could ever be. I mean, that those are the things that must happen, right? Because Jesus uh, uh, has made me righteous now and everything's good, right? Isn't that what it's supposed to be? Well, not so fast because we're still battling with this corruptible body. We haven't been made incorruptible yet. We haven't made it to Jesus's final return, his second coming, where he makes our bodies brand new. We haven't gotten to that place yet. And so what we're dealing with right now, if you remember back to the first John series several weeks ago, there's still a spirit of the Antichrist that's at work in this world. And we saw it uh, in Genesis chapter three when Satan shows up. There are gonna be many alternative voices that are saying, you know better than God. You deserve to rule on your own terms. Maybe the, the popular phrase of our day would be, you do you, you do you. Don't worry about what anybody else would say or think, this is, this is all about you, you're in total control. But in this conflict of kingdoms, only one kingdom can be right. Only one ruler can be correct. There can only be one true king. And, and what this brings us back to is the main question that we asked last week, and we kind of want to bring it back up because it's really important for us to understand, which kingdom do I want? Which kingdom do I want? Because every day, we are now faced with conflicting kingdoms. There's a clash that we see in the Bible, and there's a clash in our own lives. Now, the rest of the Bible is going to symbolically call us back to this thing that happened in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall, where sin occurred. So getting that story right is super important for us, not only to have good theology in our brains, but actually the way that we live practical theology how we live our lives now and so every moment of decision that we see in the scripture um, every time that there's a decision to be made we're supposed to think back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and we're supposed to think back to uh, which king is really going to rule is it going to be me or is it going to be god which kingdom do i want am i going to submit in faithfulness to god am i going to submit to him on his terms Or am I going to do what I want to do, which is rebellion? Do I want my kingdom or do I want God's kingdom? And we can look through the whole Old Testament after we uh, exit Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and we can just see what those choices produced, which outcome uh, came out of the decisions that they made, whether it was submission and faithfulness to God or rebellion. And what we see very clearly, whether it's the story of, Uh, Abraham uh, choosing to father a son through his female slave, Hagar, instead of Sarah, his wife. Or we could uh, look back to the story of Moses and the children of Israel who made an exodus out of Egypt and come up to the promised land. They send the 12 spies in and 10 come back with a really negative report. And all the people are swayed by those 10 negative reports rather than the two good reports that say we can do this. God's on our side. But 10 say, no, we can't. These people are like giants in our eyes and they'll destroy us and 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 they actually move away from the promised land move away from what God had for them a perfect picture of rebellion or we could look to the rest of the uh, old testament story and the rest of what the israelites faced and did throughout the rest of their history whether it's first and second samuel or first and second kings or wherever there's a idolatry problem that occurs all throughout the old testament where the israelites placed their desires above their relationship with God. And in turn, they went and served other gods. I mean, you can see them all over, whether it's Baal or Ashtar or whatever gods were, were local to their time. They served other gods. Whatever the picture is, whatever the moment is in the scripture, the results are all the same, disastrous. Abraham's second wife and son, they were exiled from Abraham's camp. They were estranged from healthy relationships. The Israelites were exiled to wander in the desert for an additional 40 years before they could re-enter the promised land once again. In fact, the generation that rebelled against God and wouldn't be faithful to him and submit to him on his terms, they didn't believe that they could overtake the land, but God said, you will and you can because I'm with you. That generation was not allowed to enter. So they wander the desert for an additional 40 years, not getting to enter God's promised land for them. And finally, we could look at the, the Assyrian and Babylonian um, defeat and enslavement of the Israelites. And what they actually did is this, is this is kind of the big moment that we see the word exile all over the Old Testament. Is they come in, the Assyrians to the northern kingdom and the Babylonians to the southern kingdom. They conquer and and then exile They exile those Israelites out of their home place, out of their promised land, the place where they were supposed to be. And they take them from their land. And what we see from scripture, what the prophets say over and over again, was that actually this is God's discipline on you guys. Because uh, Because you followed other gods, because you did injustice, because you didn't love on the poor, because you made the temple a sham. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take you from your homeland because you won't listen to me or my prophets. And I'm going to exile you. The picture is clear. Over and over and over again, that submission and faithfulness to God produce life, whereas rebellion creates separation and exile. And, and the Old Testament is just so clear on this. When humans choose any king other than God to rule and reign over their lives, that ruler never delivers on their promises. See the other rulers will promise the same things that God promised. That's exactly what Satan said. I'm gonna. I, listen, you can have better life. You can rule on your own terms if you listen to me. And this is the same idea throughout the rest of the Old Testament, is that 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 if you follow this thing, you're going to have the life that you desire. But in reality, it never turns out that way. Those kings, those alternative routes to God, that rebellion never leads to real life. It always ends in disaster. I mean, it can't because these kingdoms uh, are, are in conflict with the true king. They'll never be successful because they aren't holding up what God wants held up, which is truth and success and love and joy. And that's exactly what God wants to push us towards. These other kingdoms will promise those things, but they'll never deliver on that promise. Now, during different times, the Bible refers to the the false king uh, of this different kingdom in several different ways. And you'll you'll read this throughout, and I just want to highlight some of the phrases that you'll hear to talk about that particular ruler. One of the greatest ones that that we see is John chapter 14, verse 30. Jesus is talking about Satan here. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. The ruler of this world. That's quite a that's quite a, a phrase to attach to Satan. Um, in Ephesians chapter two, it talks about the prince of the power of the air. Um, in Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four, it talks about how Satan is the god of this world, blinding the minds of the unbelievers. We we know him best as Satan or the devil. But I think these titles that Jesus and the other New Testament writers give us are really important for us to understand because we're not dealing with a snake anymore, a little thing that you can, you know, take a garden hoe to and, you know, knock its head off or whatever. We're dealing with uh, a celestial power, a, a serious character in the story who wants nothing more than your ruin, destruction and your ultimate death. So where does this Satan come from? Um, how is he attempting to rule the earth? We're, we're calling him a false king. Jesus says he's the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the, the prince of the power of the air. How is he a ruler? What is he all about? Where does he come from? Let's look at this for a moment. Now, he was once, um, well, not once, but he is. He was one of God's angels. Uh, he, he was beautiful. He was full of light. Um, it seems somewhere between creation and Genesis chapter three, where where we first see him show up on the scene, he leads a rebellion, uh, a heavenly rebellion against God. And God, again, because what rebellion produces is exile. He casts him out of heaven. We have a couple benchmark verses in the Old Testament that talk about um, Satan, and that's going to be in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 14 through 16. I want to read that. You were an anointed guardian cherub. This is, again, one of the classification of angels, one of them. That's what he was. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of the fire. You walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. His pride led him to believe that he could be in authority over God. And I think what's interesting about what we see in this Ezekiel passage here is that Satan, not only is he just like, okay, well, I don't really like the authority that's in place right now. So I, we're, let, us, angels, let's take a vote. Let's let's have a really peaceful thing here where we take a vote and I'll take power once you guys realize that I'm full of light and beautiful and all that stuff. Instead, what is found in him is unrighteousness and violence this is one of Satan's MOs, is violence. He doesn't just want to um, destroy you with neat little phrases or, or sweet little words that, that are intended to pull you away from God. He wants to do violence towards you. He wants to create destruction in your life. And his pride led him to think that he could be in authority over God. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 and 15 say it this way. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. What a title. I mean, just think about that for a minute. Think about being called, O oh, day star, son of dawn. He must have been wonderful. He must have been a beautiful creation that God made. But this is what happens to him. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will make my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to Sheol, which is the grave, to the far reaches of the pit. Now I want you to notice two key phrases there in verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. This sounds really similar. Genesis chapter 10, the tower of Babel. Do you remember exactly what they were trying to say? We're going to build a tower that will ascend into the heavens. And he says again in verse 14, I will make myself like the most high. What does Satan say to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter three? You can be like God, knowing good and evil. This has always been what Satan has been about. He's always wanted to rule and reign above God. He's never been content to submit, obey, and be faithful to God. He's only ever wanted to, to rebel against him, and it created exile for him and his followers. Now, after he's cast from heaven, he wants to trash God's temple. He, he's not like a—he's not like a, a good loser. He's a really sore loser, in fact. And so, when he gets cast from heaven, he's not just content to say, "Okay, well, I lost, and I'm going to go lick my wounds." Instead, he creates another battle plan to go against the image bearers in God's temple. I'm going to infiltrate the temple where they're placed in the Garden of Eden. And I'm going to begin to trash God's temple and set up my own thing. He deceives them into rebelling against God. They then abdicate their rule to Satan. Here's the reality. Humans were ruling on God's behest. They were ruling. They were his governors. Their authority comes from God. They don't have any authority, any right. To, to rule and to reign the earth other than what God gave them. And what they did when they rebelled against God is they actually abdicated their rule to Satan. This is why we can look back at the verses we just talked about. Prince of the power of the air, ruler of this world, God of this age, all of these things are talking about now where the earth is. It's now ruled and reigned by Satan. And ever since the Garden of Eden, he's been influencing and using humanity to animate his desires to produce his own rule and reign and to make earth his own temple. See how opposite that is from what God wants? And his temple is a temple set up to pride, and to greed, and to violence, and extortion, and power, Not, not the kind of power that Jesus talks about, not the kind of good authority that rules over things with order and love and mercy, but rather violence and extortion, um, uh, slavery, things of those nature. That's what that's what Satan is trying to set up. Now, this is the case until one day God came in the flesh. Now, when Jesus arrived on uh, the planet Earth. The demons and all the followers of Satan were in upheaval. All the forces of evil were in conflict with, with this guy, with this man, Jesus Christ. And he resisted uh, Satan at, at his temptation moment. We see at the beginning of each gospel account that uh, uh, Satan comes and tempts Jesus the same way, or at least a similar way, to how he tempted Adam and Eve. And where Adam and Eve failed... Jesus succeeds and he actually defeats Satan in this temptation moment. There's other moments that we see clearly where Jesus escapes and is really elusive. Somehow he gets through the crowds. There's several moments in the temple. There's one really uh impressive moment where they take him to the edge of a cliff in his in his a cliff in his hometown where they're about to throw him off and somehow he just, you know, sneaks his way through. I don't know if he teleported or if he I don't know what happened. Either way, he gets out of there somehow. And, and this happens over and over and over again because what Satan's trying to do is trying to defeat or thwart the plans of God. But he can't because Jesus is, is, is not controlled by Satan. He's, he lives a different type of life. He's empowered by the Spirit in such a way that he is living a sinless life. So he evades all of this capture. He evades what Satan's trying to accomplish, which is his death. And instead of Satan killing him, now there are, uh, uh, people that, that Satan uses again, Uh, influence to animate his desire to kill Jesus. But it's not as though Jesus didn't go willingly because there's multiple moments where we see he could just easily go through the crowd and it would be no big deal. He could evade arrest, evade all this, all this crazy stuff. But until there's this moment where he says, it's finally my time. And he lays down his life as the Passover lamb, our substitutionary death for you and me, where he forgives us of our sins and what Satan actually, thought he was doing in victory. He he thinks, "I've, I've I've beaten God. I've finally done it. I've killed God. But actually what happens is through death, Jesus wins the victory and seals it with his resurrection. Death couldn't hold Jesus because he was sinless and he was righteous. And so three days later, after he was raised on the cross, he was raised to life. And he now sets up his kingdom as the true king. Now, we're in the inaugural phase of this kingdom. We're waiting for the final return of Jesus. We're emphasizing the kingdom right now because it really does matter. Um, There's been a lot of de-emphasis on what the kingdom of God is right here and his rule and his reign right now. And what we're trying to do is is actually look at the story of Jesus and re-emphasize what Jesus talks about over and over again which is that the kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. So repent, live a new life, be like me, reclaim your vocation. This is what Jesus is talking about over and over again. So we're trying to reemphasize that, but it's not as though we're saying we can make God's kingdom happen without God on on earth. We can make it happen just by living so righteous and being ambassadors for God and preaching the gospel and doing all these good and wonderful things to, to correct injustices or whatever it might be. It's not as though we make that fully realized. Like I said, we're in the inaugural phase, which means that it's, it's already happened. The kingdom is now, it's in each one of us. This is one of the interesting ways that heaven begins to touch earth. It happens in us. We become what we've called hotspots of heaven where God's presence is in us and then his will is done first in us and then outside of us to the world. And so we're making the kingdom available. We're making it seen. We're making its effects felt. But we don't make that fully realized one day. Actually, what we see is that Jesus is going to return and he's going to set up his rule and his reign completely. His rule and reign, heaven will be completely overlapping with earth and there will no longer be any conflicting kingdoms anymore. Instead, it will only be us in relationship, exactly what we saw in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We get to walk with him. We get to be in his very presence. But until that time, the clash continues. The fight goes on. There will be a conflict of kingdoms. So what does this conflict of kingdoms look like for us? Well, Satan hasn't changed his tactics very much. Well, and why would he? They work really well, right? They work very successfully. So he comes to us just like he did to Adam and Eve in the garden with questions designed to cast doubts about God's goodness and his faithfulness to us with alternative routes to living your life that doesn't require submission to God on his terms. Satan wants to rule your life and he doesn't care. Catch me here. This is really important. Satan doesn't care if you recognize that it's him ruling and reigning or not. He doesn't care. He'll let you think you're in total control. In fact, he doesn't even want you to know about him. It'd be best if you didn't. Don't ask too many questions because if you did, you might be on a, a path to truth. And that would be a problem because then you might see how distorted uh, Satan makes things, how well he lies and how and how well he moves you away from what real life could be and should be. So Satan doesn't care. He doesn't care if you know. He doesn't care if you think you're in total control and everything that good that happens in your life is all because of you and everything that bad happens in your life is all because someone else. How could it be you? You're the best person ever and you're in total control. You're the king of your kingdom. You just go ahead and rule and reign. You take all the credit for it. He doesn't care at all. But the reality is that people who live outside of God's kingdom, whether they think it's their kingdom or not, they are living in Satan's kingdom. And this is exactly how scripture describes it. Satan is behind all the power that we see. Now, certainly we have decisions to make and and Satan doesn't force us into that. We are influenced by what he says though. And those thoughts sometimes that flash across our minds, they could be us, certainly, but they may also be coming from someplace. We like to think we're perfectly rational and we are totally in control. And yet Facebook can listen to us and send us ads that we then buy. We are very manipulated, manipulatable. I don't know if that's a word. <laughs> I don't know if that's a word or not. We are very easily manipulated. And Satan knows that. And he's going to continue to use that tactic to come against us. See, Satan is not focused on on your best life. He doesn't care. Now he'll promise you that you'll have the best life through him or through his kingdom or through his means of finding life, but really he's all about your ultimate destruction. Jesus says it in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes to steal, to kill and to destroy, right? But Jesus, alternatively, I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. Now the primary way That Satan achieves death and destruction is through disinformation, distorting reality, and outright lies. Fake news. That's what Satan is all about. Jesus says in John chapter 8 verse 44, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. It couldn't be any more clear. <laughs> I think we said lie like five times in all of that. Uh, those sentences there. It couldn't be more clear what Satan is about. He's about dis- disinformation, distorting reality, giving alternative routes to life. He wants you to live on your own terms because ultimately you're fitting into his kingdom If you do so, his ultimate goal is to set you against the kingdom of God so that your life will go down a path of separation and exile from God, just like his, just like Adam and Eve's and just like all the pictures that we can read all throughout the old Testament. And just like we can see in human history, what happens when people are opposed to God's kingdom, there's great suffering, there's great violence, and there's great death when, when People try to set up things that go towards life and go towards kingdom without actually submitting to the true king, which is God. And Satan is all about this. He's all about getting you to collude, not with Russia, but with him. He's all about getting you to collude with him, whether or not you know you're colluding with him. He doesn't care. He just wants you to live for yourself on your terms, which ultimately are for him. So, then we have a decision to make about which kingdom that we're going to live in because we can't live in both this is kind of the whole point of, of why jesus came he comes to set up his kingdom and to reclaim those who want to be faithful and submit to him so we have a decision to make which kingdom do i want do i want god's kingdom or do i want my kingdom And what I'm advocating, what we as a church are advocating is that you would choose God's kingdom and that you would choose God to be your one true king and Lord of your life. Now, having decided for Christ as your king, you now have the task of living as an ambassador for God's kingdom, a representative for his kingdom, Um, one who has reclaimed that original vision of vocation, which is that we're to be like God on his terms. We're to be faithful to him, we're to submit to him, and we're to obey his commands. And one of the big takeaways from the New Testament is the way you live should reflect which kingdom you belong to. That's kind of an indictment on on me. (laughs) I'll just be personal for him. I'll use an I statement. The way that I live should reflect which kingdom I belong to. And I'm not sure that I could say every day at every single minute of the day, every moment of the day, that I'm making the right decisions all the time to live in God's kingdom. And here's the reality. There's a battle that's waging. There's a battle that's going on. See, Satan has lost the battle for your soul if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus. He doesn't have the ability to to lead you ultimately to that ultimate destruction where you're separated and exiled from God for eternity. But he's not just, again he's a sore loser. He's not just, okay, well, you're saved now, so I can't, you know, I can't do anything about it. No, instead, he wants to trash you, who is now the temple of God. He wants to come in and influence you and mess you up. He enacts a different uh, battle path or battle route, a different strategy to get you to live as though you don't belong to God's kingdom at all. That's what he's trying to do. Now, that might sound really dramatic, but it's how uh, scripture describes what's going on. There's a real battle that's going on. Satan is consistently trying to attack you, and he's he's going to do it whether you're tired, whether you're well rested, whether you're hungry or not, whether you're having a good day or not. He's going to come after you all the time. And this battle is happening between his kingdom and God's kingdom all the time. Paul describes it like this: We're to be faithful soldiers who are on a mission. Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 10 through 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why is he talking about armor if it's not a battle? That's the whole point. It is a battle. You have to put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Um, Now, for each of us who have entered into God's kingdom through new birth, and so we talked about last week, by placing our faith in King Jesus, declaring that he is Lord of our life, you now become an overcomer. And the way that you overcome the world, the way that you overcome the schemes of the devil is through your faith and submission to God on his terms. First John chapter five, verses three through five, say it this way, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. This is where we get messed up. We say, okay, well, if I have to live for God, I have to do all this list of rules. What is this all about? Well, you're missing the point. It's not burdensome to do the commandments of God because he loves us and he has real life for us. We are so quick to forget that when we feed into Satan's kingdom or our own kingdom, which is really Satan's kingdom, we always end up with a shadow or a hollow reality that isn't really true. And the promise of life that we were chasing after never really materializes. I mean, how many stories do we have to hear of millionaires or sports superstars who hit the home run in the World Series or made all this money and and then feel empty and alone inside before we realize, it's? listen, if I do it, it's gonna be the same thing. If that's my only pursuit and that's all I'm about, if that's the only success that I can find is material, material possessions or popularity or power or whatever, it's, it's ultimately going to end not in life not in the abundant life that Jesus is talking about. And so the way that we overcome all of this, the way that we find real life is through our faith in Christ. It's through obeying his commandments, knowing that they're not burdensome. They lead us to goodness. They lead us to truth, to joy, to peace, to righteousness. Verse four goes on like this, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Now, this sounds like, okay, well, that's it. That's all I'm supposed to do. Well, there's a little bit more to the story. I'll, I'll keep going here just for a few more minutes, but, but that's it? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> Putting our, our faith in Jesus, making him Lord of our lives, that is the victory. That puts us over the power of death. That takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and makes us a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so submission isn't passivity. It's not like I sit back and and all the blessings of God will flow as I sit here with my mouth open and he just feeds me all the blessings or whatever. That's not what happens. Actually, submission is active and intentional. We don't stand idly by on defense. I don't know if you've ever played sports or not, but there's zone defense in basketball or zone defense in like football. And what that means is you have an area to cover. Now, if I'm like a center in basketball, I'm standing kind of right under the hoop and I'm just kind of waiting for somebody to show up. And I'm just kind of looking around. I'm kind of guarding my zone, my little area. And when the ball happens to pass by me, then I react. That's not what we're supposed to be as Christians. Instead, we're supposed to be on offense. We're supposed to be on the attack. We're supposed to be taking the fight against the gates of hell, right? Uh, the church won't be, be stopped. In fact, that's what Jesus says uh, to Peter and to us later on, is that the church won't be stopped. As we're energized by the power of the Holy Spirit to take the teachings and the commandments of Jesus forward as we have our faith in him, we are overcoming Satan's kingdom. And now, there's a reality at which those who are in God's kingdom have heaven in them right now and their natural progression to, of life will be that one day they are in heaven, which ultimately will be overlapped with earth and will have an embodied existence. But the end of our life will be heaven. Now, the opposite is true of those who live in Satan's kingdom. They right now are are producing hell on earth. I don't know if you've thought about it in those terms. And the natural progression of their life is not that Jesus throws them into hell or God throws them into hell because he hates them. No, the natural progression of their life is that they send themselves to that place. That's what rebellion, that's what separation and exile produce in us. And what we're supposed to do is not be passive in this whole thing. We're supposed to be active and intentional. We are to advance the kingdom of heaven even as we're awaiting our incorruptible bodies. Yes, right now. The kingdom is right now. It's not only future when we get that that perfected body. Rather, it's right now. We're supposed to be engaged in the battle right now. One day, yes, our desire to not sin will match up with our ability to do so. But in the meantime, the important thing that we're supposed to take away is that we should try our best to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is accomplished by partnering with the Holy Spirit, allowing God to transform you back into uh, that more fully human thing that we saw in the garden and through Jesus. See, Jesus shows us a new way to be human. Now, absolutely, he's God in the flesh, right? But he's showing us a new way to be humans. We're not to view success and power and all of those things the way that the world does. Instead, we're supposed to view success and power as service to our fellow man. We're supposed to go the extra mile. We're supposed to turn the other cheek when people strike us or hate us. We're supposed to love our enemies and pray for them. All the things that we've been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing us what we're supposed to do and how our hearts are supposed to be changed. But we don't do this on our own. We have to have the power of the Holy Spirit in us as we declare that Jesus is Lord. And the power of our faith is how we overcome. Now, making you ineffective is Satan's most effective strategy. That's what he wants to do to obstruct the kingdom of God, to stop it, to thwart its movement forward, Satan is going to live up to what his name means. His name means accuser. And this is one of his primary attacks against you. He will accuse you of not being good enough, of not knowing enough, of not being likable enough, not being smart enough. You'll never get better at this thing. You'll always have this list of issues. Others will always be better than you. And his accusations never end. And not only that, he may even use other people, situations, or circumstances in your life to produce traumatic events, embarrassing moments. Like, you know what I'm talking about, the moments where you're still laying in bed at 11 and like you're replaying that moment when you were 15 was the most embarrassing thing you ever said in your whole life. He's using moments like that, as silly as some of those might be or as serious as some of them might be, to chain you to ineffectivity. He wants to neutralize you to stop you from pushing the kingdom of heaven forward. But this is not how God views us. And this is the good news. God views us as his children. We are made in his image. We are loved. We are cared for. We are offered mercy and grace. We're given purpose and peace and joy and a deeper understanding that we could ever have. And all of that happens through the Holy Spirit indwelling us, us becoming hot spots in those many temples as we carry God's presence forward in our own bodies and as we do his will first in our minds and our hearts and then outward to the people around us in our communities. We're supposed to be intentional in our pursuit of God's kingdom. And if we're not, we are being intentional for Satan's. It, it's as cut and dry as that. I don't know how else to say it, There's not a pretty way to say it. Either we're living for heaven or we're living for hell. And we can't be doing both simultaneously. We can only be doing one thing. And what God has called us to, and what shouldn't be burdensome to us, is to chase after life. So why do we belittle our own thought life? Why do we trivialize behaviors that we know are detrimental to our growth? Why do we take our daily walks with Jesus so lightly? Why don't we take seriously the call that Jesus gives us to die to self, to get rid of the things that the old man would do and instead live into the new things that Jesus has for us? Well, this is exactly why God's word is filled with promises of life in Jesus. Through our faith, we can overcome the lies that Satan will shoot at us, the the accusations that he will make at us all the time. We can change our self-image. By living out scripture. Now, no one's saying that we're going to be perfect at this tomorrow or today. No one's saying that this isn't a process. It 100% is a process. But through prayer, through the reading of scripture, by speaking to yourself and about yourself the way that God does as a dearly beloved child of His, not just as a citizen, you're not just a number to God. You are a citizen, but you're not just a you know, a number or a, just a random person in this great uh, number of people, you're intimately known and valued by God. Jesus loves you dearly. You're his child. And, and when we talk that way and when we have self-talk that way and when we're reading our scripture and we're praying and we're holding one another accountable as we invest in our communities, as we, as we do those things, we'll begin to take our behaviors more seriously we'll begin to take our thought lives more seriously in the things that we think. And we'll begin to catch ourselves not being intentional in moments because uh, not only is it our brain catching it, but it's also the Holy Spirit saying, hey, come back. I need to catch your attention. Hey, come back, come back. Listen up here. Instead of thinking about this, let's be intentional this way because part of the Holy Spirit's function is to illuminate you towards all truth and to guide you toward himself. His will for each one of us is to first be discipled and then to go out and disciple others. He wants us to renew our minds daily through the reading of his word, through seeking him, asking him what he would have for us next. That's how we find out what his will is. We have to die to our old ways. And we have to take, I don't know how else to say this. We have to take moments, even if they're small moments, where uh, uh, I'm realizing, oh, I didn't yell at my kids the way I normally would in this situation. That's a small moment where the Holy Spirit is is changing my behavior, changing the way that I react to situations. And instead of me doing one thing, I'm now doing a new thing. That's exactly what Jesus does in us. Whether it's the way that you view other people, or the way that your language is sounding, what words you use or don't use. Whether it's what you're focusing or spending your time on. All of those things begin to change as we start to get routed by the Holy Spirit, as we partner with him towards life towards the things that produce um, goodness and truth and purpose in us so we can die to our old selves and we can celebrate those small victories and when we fail listen there's grace for that as well there's there is forgiveness and love and a path forward from that we don't have to be chained to that because that's what satan wants you to think he wants you to think well you're just always going to do this and you're so crummy or whatever god says yeah i know you messed up and i love you and i want you to recognize that you messed up, but I also want you to go and sin no more. So we should take regular spiritual inventory. We should introspectively think in our own minds as we maybe do our Bible studies or whatever, as we have times of prayer, we should think, where's my relationship at with you, Lord? How do I move it forward? How am I dealing with others right now? What do my relationships with others look like? What what does my Bible reading look like right now? Am, am, I, am I praying, am I spending time in any of those spiritual disciplines? Because here's here's the thing, We keep harping on the spiritual disciplines because they're very simple but effective ways that we gain victory over Satan. And if we're not doing that necessary training, then we're really not putting the armor of God on. If we're not doing that necessary training of of reading God's word and praying and spending time with our communities and trying to be held accountable by one another, all the things that we've just listed. If we're not doing those things, then we're setting ourselves up to fail against what Satan has for us. What God wants for us is victory, and he has it just on the other side of our submission and faithfulness. Victory is through that. Victory happens because of it. We become overcomers as we um, link ourselves to the true King, Jesus Christ. And never forget that we're not alone in this. When, When Jesus tells us what we're supposed to do, which is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey the commands, All the things that Jesus told us. He ends it this way. And I really love this. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. And behold, I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. Jesus isn't going anywhere. He loves you. He cares for you. He is your true king. And he's not going to uh, produce violence and lust and greed and extortion and all those things. Instead, he's going to produce life and life more abundantly. So here's the challenge this week. Maybe maybe many of us need to pick up uh, uh, getting back in our word. We need to read the scripture more faithfully. Maybe some of us need to pray more faithfully. We need to be really practical. And I'm not asking you to do seven hours of Bible study in the morning. I'm asking you to start somewhere. Because again, it's a process of growth. We don't start uh, eating steak when we're babies. We start with milk, right? So it's going to be a process the same for us. We need to start with small things and move our way up. To maybe some larger things. If you're already uh, doing a lot of time with God, then maybe focus on on doing some service or some um, some things outside of yourself that would that would engage the kingdom of God in your community and in your family and, and uh, the people around you. There's a host of ways for us to move forward as we are become these hotspots of heaven, making heaven a reality in my own life, and then as I bear it forward. But the ultimate thing that we should remember is that God is with us through all of us. We don't do this on our own. The Holy Spirit is with you. I want you to picture this week that he is partnered with you, that he's with you, that he's not leaving, that he's by your side. Whether it's through prayer, you can imagine him just in the chair next to you or sitting next to you or whatever. You can imagine him there because he is and his presence is abiding with you. And as we abide with him, he'll abide with us. I'm going to finish with a prayer this morning. And I want to encourage you guys. I want to encourage you, spend the next seven days until we can meet again this way. Uh, go sign up for the, uh, the 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 watch parties. That's what they're called. Jeremy's mouthing it to me. For the watch parties, uh, go and invest in those communities. Even if it's not necessarily like the friend group that you normally always see, maybe go uh, mix and mingle with other people from our church that you may not know. Go sign up for those things um, and do your best this week, knowing that God is with you and that he's empowering you by the Holy Spirit to chase after him because when we chase after him, we find real life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you that um, that while Satan is powerful, you are far more powerful. And that while his kingdom right now on earth is, is still very real and alive, and, and he is the king of this world for a time, ultimately, that's not where it's all headed. Ultimately, you are going to come back. And ultimately, right now, even, There are those who are in your kingdom and those who are trying to be faithful to you and trying to submit to you. I pray this week that as we are faithful to you, as we submit to you, Father, that you in kind would send us blessings and you would help us to find small victories in areas of our lives where we get rid of the old ways of living and rather live into the new way the new humanity that you showed us as we serve others, love others, as we um, engage our relationship with you. Help us this week to grow our relationship with you. Help us to become those conduits of heaven where your presence is and where your will is done. Help us to battle Satan this week. Help us to view it just as scripture describes as a battle that's ongoing And, and help us to not be lethargic or idle, but instead help us to take up the whole armor of God as we fight against the schemes of the devil. We don't want to submit to him. We don't want to collude with him and bring hell about more on earth. Instead, we want to submit to you. We want to obey you. We want to follow your commands. And so this week, empower us via the Holy Spirit and give us a new sense of your nearness and closeness, your presence in us and with us as we push heaven forward. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.